Basically, I, I said something like, in the, in the arc of the Putin presidency, unlike a regular president or head of state, Putin doesn't you know, operate in a four-year period. He operates in decades. He operates like a pope or, or uh, you know, a, a, like the queen, of, the queen of the United Kingdom. Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat, because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda, you said Russia. And the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back, because you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. The seasoned politicos in our audience might recognize Barack Obama's famous quip on former governor and then-candidate Mitt Romney in a 2012 presidential election debate, back when America hoped to reset its relationship with Russia whilst pivoting towards the Asia-Pacific. Two years later, Russia annexed Crimea and sent little green men to back Ukrainian separatists, leaving that country in a state of perpetual civil war since. Over the past month, Russia has further escalated tensions, massing troops on its border with Ukraine. The Kremlin demands that the U.S. never allow Ukraine nor Georgia into NATO and that all countries that joined since 1997 be expelled from the alliance. In other words, Vladimir Putin wants to enforce a Monroe Doctrine of sorts in its immediate vicinity that would leave Ukraine squarely in Russia's sphere of influence. As the possibility of armed conflict in the East becomes a distinct probability, we take stock of these tensions in the launch episode of Season 4 with the Atlantic Council's Vladislav Davidson and Catholic University's Michael Kimmich, both returnees to the show. And don't forget that, as always, whether or not we continue to grow as a show is in your hand. You can join our growing group of generous patrons for as little as the price of a sandwich a month by clicking on the link on the episode description down below. We would also really appreciate if you could support us by writing a review on Apple Podcasts or by sharing the show with friends and family. We've got many wonderful projects for this new season, and we will need all the support you can get. Now, on to the show. On one side of a line in DC, we have Michael Kimmage. Michael, you're a professor of history at Catholic University, specialized in the history of the Cold War and of Russo-American relations more generally. You even served in Obama's administration in the US Department of State on the Russia-Ukraine portfolio, so I have to say this is quite relevant to our conversation. Um, you published in 2020 a fascinating book, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, for which we had invited you for the sixth episode of a podcast called Between Russia and the West. So I recommend you guys give a listen to it. It's a really fascinating blend of history and politics. Um, welcome back, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. And on the other side of the line, we have uh, Michael in DC. And on the other side of the line, we have uh, Vladislav Davidson in Odessa. Vladislav is a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. But Vladislav is a man of many talents, as he's also a co-producer for a TV show on the dissolution of the USSR, as well as a cultural correspondent for Tablet Magazine. Um, he's also another returnee on the show, having starred in episode 29, Europe's Pirate State on Belarus. 
And you've also recently published From Odessa with Love on Ukrainian culture and politics. I want to give a special shout out and thank you for um, Vladislav, who's taking a break away from his upcoming wedding in Odessa, where he's going to be meeting with the local mobsters and all the uh, wealthy oligarchs of Ukraine. So thank you so much, uh, Vlad, for, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm uh, I'm just uh, uh, getting prepped for a Odessa society wedding, where the uh, the the great, the good, the oligarchs and the mafioso are going to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun. Good company, then. Uh, well, Vlad, let's begin with you, then. Uh, as as I just said, you're in Odessa. Um, how do the Ukrainians feel about the recent developments? How do they feel about the growing tensions between the US, between the, um, and in, in Russia, between Russia and the UK. Can you give us some insights on the ground? Um, do people in Ukraine feel like they're heading towards some kind of uh, conflict on a larger scale? Well, I just arrived from Kiev last night. So I just, I just hit the ground running last night in Odessa and I'm seeing my friends and some, uh, some contacts. I wrote a piece in the Atlantic Council three days ago, which was basically a diary of how completely ambivalent everyone is here and how, you know, how amazingly they're able to compartmentalize and just ignore reality and ignore the drumbeat of war and ignore the drumbeat of bad international news. Basically in Kiev, everyone knows what's going on and is ignoring it. Here, I, like no one knows anything at all. It's like Odessa is its own little bubble and no one hasn't noticed anything and you know I, I went to my friend's restaurant in the morning she's a restaurateur and she asked me a few questions like oh yeah something's going on you, you have news you kind of know people I said yes uh who are you talking to I, I just saw a famous conductor I saw a couple of security people this morning a couple of friends had lunch with uh, some other people no one is concerned at all in Odessa it's just the the most amazing form of cognitive distance <laughs> you know and Michael, you're currently in D.C. Does it feel like um, one on the verge of a major confrontation with Russia? How is the D.C. bubble reacting to the, <laughs> the entire news story? Well, the city of Washington, of course, is preoccupied with, uh, with COVID and with, um, you know, a sort of recent bout of bad weather. Uh, so it's not on the tip of everybody's tongue in the city, perhaps in that respect, sort of similar to Odessa, but certainly the expert community yeah. is absolutely uh, on edge. Uh, and the question here seems to be, rightly or wrongly, not uh, whether there will be a sort of massive conflict, but just really when. Is it going to be this month, next month, uh, or a little bit later on? So, you know, D.C. is uh, uh, in a state of, uh, of agitation of a kind that I've really never seen before. Well, Michael, can you, before we go into the weeds of the whole situation, can you kind of paint a broad picture of what is going on between Ukraine and Russia. Um, we've seen some uh, 110,000 troops who've been massing up at the Russian troops, massing up at the Ukrainian borders to do some kind of training exercise. Um, uh, what is going on? And also perhaps um, tensions have been ongoing since 2013. We remember the annexation of Crimea. We remember the ongoing conflict in Eastern Ukraine. Um, why is Russia upping the ante now? So broad picture, and why is it escalating now? Yes, um, you know these are these are excellent questions, of course, and maybe this speaks to what uh, Vladislav was describing a moment ago in terms of a sort of mood of resignation uh, among many in Ukraine. This war has been going on for a long time; it never uh, it never ended. Huh. So it's now in its uh, in its seventh year. So it's not 
the, a new chapter exactly uh, is beginning. This is the continuation of an unresolved conflict um, that goes back to the the flight of, of Yanukovych and, as you say, the annexation of Crimea, uh, invasion of the Donbass in, uh, in 2014. So you have two things that are very notable and that does make this situation new. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, amassing of hardware uh, and to a degree of troops, not just on Russia's border with Ukraine, but also on the border between Belarus uh, and Ukraine, uh, suggesting at least the potential for a ground invasion, a land invasion at three points, sort of from the north, from the south, uh, and from the east. You could factor in an amphibious landing, if you will, as part of that you know, sort of hypothetical uh, scenario. So Russia did a military buildup in the spring of 2020, but this is much more substantial. Uh, and you've seen a kind of cycling uh, in of soldiers, uh, you know, sort of toward the border uh, in a way that's absolutely uh, menacing. But that's not uh, the only relevant detail at the moment. Uh, at the same time that Russia has done this, you know, sort of from November uh, till, you know, sort of the last couple of days, what you've seen is the issuing of ultimatums to the West. And in fact, this did not happen in 2014. Uh, it didn't happen in early 2020. You had a kind of boring meeting between Biden uh, and Putin in the summer of 2020 that didn't suggest that war was uh, was imminent. But uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, Russia has issued a series of demands uh, that NATO return to its 1997 configuration, that NATO expansion be uh, instead of terminated, uh, at least for uh, for Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, I think most people look at these demands as so unrealistic that they seem perhaps to be just a pretext for waging the war for which Russia has created uh, the capacity over the last couple of months. Vlad, I, I saw in a, a recent article in Unheard, you were uh, giving some uh, context and you had a very interesting theory so for why Russia was upping the ante now. Which is uh, the theory you want me to uh, elaborate on that theory? My yeah. my my pal D uh, David Patrikarakos wrote that piece. It was a very yeah. very kind uh, of him. He's a wonderful journalist and he's spent a lot of time here. Really understands uh, the the situation very well. So basically, I I said something like you know the in the in the arc of the Putin presidency, you know, unlike a regular president or head of state, Putin doesn't you know, operate in a four-year period. He operates in decades, right? Mm. He operates like a pope or, you know, a pope or, you know, like the queen of the queen of the United Kingdom. He, he well, he has outlasted a few popes, if I'm, if I'm correct. He, he has, started yes. with John Paul II. He got, he, he, he waited out Benedict XVI and uh, now he's got Francis. He's, he's, he's more than a pope. Right. So exactly right. He, like, like, uh, the queen of the UK, yeah. he has institutional memory of five different presidents, six different mm. prime ministers, three different popes, right? Mm. And he has an arc of his historical career, which is 30 years as opposed to four years or eight years for a lucky mm. president or prime minister. So, you know, in comparison to the historical arc of his presidency, he, he probably does see uh, a, a president of, of the United States who he considers to be weak, who has signaled in all the wrong ways that they really want to reset, who has not been able to get uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, out of sight, who's not been able to uh, really arm uh, Ukrainian Stivitiv, uh, a, a foreign policy apparatus in uh, the West Wing that really would like to concentrate on other things without going into what those other things are, would really, really 
prefer not to have to say nasty things publicly, but, you know, would like to have a quiet reset. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't vote for President Donald Trump, and I, and I do understand why so many people become maddened by President Trump. This is exactly the kind of thing Donald Trump was good for, uh, mm-hmm. strategic, uh, strategic ambiguity, mm-hmm. table thumping, screaming about mm-hmm. power, and, and scaring away, uh, 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 you know, revisionist powers through the adroit use of madman theory. That's exactly mm-hmm. like the one thing that Donald Trump was really good at and good for was uh, was yelling oh, cruise missiles now ground. You know, that kind of thing is, is not what uh, President Biden is good at or good for. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's much worse. I prefer actually the the, the latter approach. Man-man theory, for those who don't know, is the idea that if you act so irrationally, people will be afraid to challenge you because they could not expect you to behave in a kind of calculated, rational way, which was very important in kind of nuclear theory, where people thought, if I'm doing this, Nixon is going to cr- go crazy and send the nukes. Um, can, can I just say one thing extra? I, I yeah. grew up in Brooklyn, and when I was in high school, I used to play football on the Fred Trump Memorial football field uh-huh. uh, in high school in South Brooklyn. And uh, we understand Donald Trump for all his vulgarity and viciousness and amorality. We understand him very well where I'm from. Um, Michael, is there an end game here for, for, for Putin? He's putting a lot of pressure. You believe he could go even as far as invading parts of Ukraine. Um, is there a strategic objective here? Is he simply being opportunistic? He's testing the waters as a new American president. Um, he has plenty of cash because the price of gas has gone up. Um, uh, does he want a conflict? Is he bluffing to gain concessions? Is there some kind of domestic angle we are missing here that is driving his policy? How do we explain Putin's endgame? Is there an endgame? Is he just kind of trying to see how much he can get out of this? Yes, I think that there's a clear endgame for Putin. It's at the, at the minimum, it's sort of the neutrality of Ukraine uh, in geopolitical terms. So let me just go back uh, and add an alternative explanation to the one that Vladislav just su- supplied for uh, the origins of this crisis. I wouldn't factor Biden in much. I don't think it makes a big uh, difference. Uh, you know, there hasn't been much of a change in Russia policy from Trump uh, to Biden. And a lot of the problems got worse uh, under Trump. I think from a Russian perspective, the timing uh, comes from the growing military relationship between Ukraine uh, and the West, um, you know, it's really uh, evolved quite considerably. Uh, and I think in the Russian calculus, I think Vladislav is exactly right. Thinking in terms of decades, uh, if this trajectory is allowed to go on, Putin believes uh, it's going to, you know, sort of put Ukraine entirely out of Russia's reach. So this is the window uh, that he sees where he can do something about uh, a geopolitical orientation in Ukraine uh, that he doesn't like and feels that Russia uh, cannot accept. So I put much more of a military logic. And I would also look to events within uh, Ukrainian politics in the first six months of 2020 and a sort of growing frustration with uh, Zelensky and sort of localize the conflict a little bit yeah. more. I think Washington may be, uh, is of course an important factor, but I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's the, uh, the pivotal one. So this, you know, sort of in turn takes us to the question that you just posed, Francois, about uh, what Russia is aiming for. Uh, and I think, uh, they have, you know, sort of a suite of options that the military force has given them. One is just to exert uh, so much pressure on Ukraine that Ukraine cracks. I think it's an unlikely uh, outcome, but it's possible. 
secondly, to exert so much pressure on the West that the West cracks uh, and that you'll get just a sort of backing down. And we can talk you know, a little bit later about Macron and France and you know, sort yep. of Germany's reservations. But this is, again, I think not likely, but also not science fiction. Uh, and if that doesn't pan out, if the West sort of holds firm, uh, I think what you'll see is a Russian effort to destroy the Ukrainian military, which is not necessarily uh, entailing an invasion that could be done from the air and that could be done with missiles uh, or with cyber power and other tools just to incapacitate the Ukrainian state to make it incapable of functioning, uh, which would serve the strategic end of uh, of rendering the country neutral, which would, of course, also you know, sort of destroy civilized life in Ukraine. But uh, that's quite possibly a price that Putin is willing to pay. Wow. Okay. So, um, Vlad, what, what do you think of the idea that um, Putin is ready to go all the way if, if necessary? I, I actually do believe that he is not bluffing. I think he, he I think he's well past calculated the costs in terms of international sanctions, the collapse of the Russian stock market, the collapse mm-hmm. of the ruble fervor, the collapse of uh, international uh, uh reputation, the, 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 whether he could get the Germans back on side in a year with Nord Stream 2, uh, how many dead Russians uh, the Russian population can, can uh, accept. Uh, accept. Is it 10,000? Is it 500? Is it, is it 30,000? I mean, they, they have done those calculations. I'm sure they have priced in every single scenario, and they've had 15 different scenarios that they're willing to cycle through, uh, ranging from uh, terrorist attacks in Kiev or Kharkiv or Odessa, and uh, deniable uh, counter counter um, infrastructure uh, EMPs or or you know just a cyber attack which which could destroy the heating in the middle of winter for like a month and a half, uh, all the way to apocalypses taking half the country and bringing tanks in from Belarus down to Kiev, which a lot of people don't think can happen. But they you know they could if they wanted to change a government and then step back. We could also do lots of things in between, ranging from taking Mariupol to taking Odessa mm. to uh, a land bridge to Kerch or a land bridge to Transnistria, uh, annexing parts of Donbass, uh, putting troops all the way up to the other side of the uh, of the Kiev River, all sorts of options. I, I do think that they'll, they'll do something, just as, as, uh, as the president, uh, Russian word is Lyapnol, I think uh, he, he, he accidentally said what he was thinking in, in public. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't think he's very good at uh, controlling uh, the, the words that come out of his mouth. Uh, mm. Sadly, there was there's just a lot of frustration here over him not reading what was on the card, but actually going off reservation and saying what it is that the national security people are actually telling him. Mm. So, you know, I, I do think that they will uh, do something. And I don't think that they're going to take over half the country because who wants to take the entire, you know, the entire meal to digest in one big gulp with, mm. uh, the, ter- with, the, with the, the partisan warfare that the Ukrainians are going to engage in? This would be uh-huh. really, really, really bad. It would be tens of thousands of dead Russians. I don't think he's going to uh, take over half the country, but I do think it could be mm. bad. Vlad, you were making this um, uh, funny but also very insightful point about how Putin is, is a pope or a queen of England. He's here for a long time. I, I want to bring in my uh, old IR student uh, background here in the, in the conversation. It's going to be useful for once. Um, if you're that kind of leader who's been around for a long time, um, let's bring some game theory here. Because um, I think European leaders probably think of these incidents as kind of a one-off game. 
Whereas Putin probably thinks of this as a multiple iteration game, thinking that um, the lessons drawn from this crisis will be uh, impactful in the next crisis. Um, could Ukraine, could the current um, uh, pressure campaign on Ukraine currently be a first step towards similar intimidation campaigns in Ukraine or in other regions for the years to come? Perhaps what I'm trying to say is, will the lessons drawn from this crisis shape the way we approach and the way Russia approaches future similar incidents? Uh, Michael? I think the answer is clearly yes. And I would go back, uh, in this case, not to uh, uh, Russian military actions in Ukraine in 2014, but to Russian military actions in Syria in 2015. Uh, so Russia moved in, uh, you know, in a way, modestly, not with a huge commitment of ground troops, but with air power and a clear show of support for uh, Assad. Uh, any number of atrocities were uh, committed in Aleppo and elsewhere. And no real resolution to the crisis has been found. There's no diplomatic solution in, in Syria. There's no resolution on the ground. It remains as chaotic as it was. But from a Russian vantage point, it was quite a successful operation in the sense that it won Russia leverage in the region through arms sales and uh, other uh, vehicles, uh, but also won Russia a seat at the table, that you really can't do Middle East diplomacy now regarding Syria and other questions without uh, factoring in uh, Russia. So I think that's the template. That's the model. It doesn't map on perfectly to Ukraine by any means. Uh, and I think Russia, radical as Putin may be, doesn't want to turn Ukraine into uh, into Syria, but I think he sees diplomacy with the West as hopeless. He's not going to get what he wants through persuasion. Yeah. The West doesn't agree. It's not going to listen. That's a dead end. Uh, and the diplomacy of the last couple of weeks kind of confirms that judgment, I would I would suspect, for Putin. So the question is, how do you rewrite the rules through other mechanisms? And so I think military force is really what Putin has, whether there's the threat of military force, which is destabilizing for Europe, or whether it's the implementation of uh, of military force, you know, it could be Ukraine, you know, obviously Belarus is already being sort of integrated into Russia yeah. militarily and, uh, and politically, yeah. and you have, you know, models for this in Georgia, Moldova. Uh, so it's not entirely new, but I think Putin is going to push the envelope much more uh, because he's modernized the Russian military, he has more tools. Uh, and I think he's feeling uh, at the moment, this is just guesswork, of course, but I think he's feeling self-confident uh, in part because of the results uh, he reaped from the, the Syria intervention. Uh -huh. Vlad? I would uh, follow up on all of that and agree with it. I do think that he is doing extraordinarily well. I do think that he's playing a very bad uh, hand in terms of, uh, you know, hmm. economic and capacity, not military capacity. There's no military uh, outside of the U.S. Army, except maybe the, the, the French and the British in Europe who could stand up even for a little bit to the to yeah. the conventional forces of the Russian army you know except the Ukrainians of course who you know have built a tremendous war machine over the last 7 years uh, but it's certainly not uh in terms of air and, and naval power capable of yeah. standing up to the Russians but they have built a defensive army yeah. yeah which which is you know remarkable they've done a lot yeah. in you know starting with zero or even with negative points on the board. It seems to me that we've already reached a kind of terminus in the process of the uh, 
reconstruction of a security architecture. Belarus is now entirely within the Russian column, yeah. within the Russian military sphere. I mean, Lukashenko, mm. there's no political solution yet, but his territory is now the territory of the Russian army, which was not before. He, he was, um, you know, resisting that for a very long time, but kind of total assimilation into the, into the Russian project. Even though the uh, the uh, Belarusian Russian Union state is a very, you know, fudgy thing as a concept, mm. you can really take it in any direction. I mean, they are in a union state, so you can you can kind of parse that however you want, and you can you mm. can structure that however you want. But now the Russian army is a threat to Lithuania and a direct threat to Poland. There are now Russian troops on the Lithuanian border again, and uh, they are not going away. The entire northern flank of Ukraine is now open to mm. Russian invasion, and it's a it's much much closer from the Chernigiv northern border to to Kiev than it is from any other place uh, next to next to Lugansk or Donetsk. You know, you could you could really get from the Belarus border to Kiev very quickly. I think I've driven once in two and a half hours, two hours from. From Kiev to Chernigiv, and I think it's another hour to the border. It's really quick. You can really get tanks f- from from the Belarus border to Kiev very quickly. That was not the case before. So, you know, Ukraine is now surrounded in a way that it was not several months ago. Huh. And Sweden and Finland are now making noises about joining about joining NATO. This is a serious, serious game changing architecture of security changing movement on the entire eastern flank of the European Union. Um, that is a fantastic segue to the question I had. Um, Michael, you just wrote an article um, uh, last week on the 17th of January in Foreign Affairs um, called Time for NATO to Close Its Door. Given what you just told me about the way Russia is acting, um, the, the the thesis of the article is that NATO has gone too far. It's too big, too provocative for its own good. Um, isn't there a slight contradiction in the terms here? I don't think so. I think that, uh, first of all, Ukraine is not going to join NATO, as I think basically everybody knows. So it's a it's a strange dance rhetorically mm-hmm. that's done around that question. At the very best, it's a distraction. Uh, at worst, it's sort of gives Kiev false hope and gives Putin a lot of rhetorical fodder to mm-hmm. use for domestic Russian politics. So it's a debit, I think, in almost every respect, that uh, that commitment. Uh, and then secondly, this is what I try to flesh out uh, in the article, flesh out in the article, is uh, NATO is a defensive alliance, and it's superb uh, at defending its members, as it would be if Lithuania is threatened or Estonia or Latvia mm-hmm. uh, or Poland. It's really has 100% success on this track record from 1945 to the present. NATO is terrible out of area. You know, it really, uh, it uh, failed completely in Libya. Uh, It recently, you know, had a failed mission in Afghanistan. Uh, I guess you could say in sort of Yugoslavia that there was a success then, but it's been followed by a series of out of area failures by NATO. And I think NATO as the defender of Ukraine or as a sort of instrument in Ukraine is just ill-designed for it. So, There are many options for a military counter-response of the U.S., of its uh, European partners, but I think NATO is just not it. Uh, So I think we clarify our side. It's not a concession to the Russians, in my view. We clarify our side by just saying NATO is there to defend uh, its members. And of course, in the short term, even if one keeps the door open, 
uh, and probably it will be kept open. But uh, in the short term, you know, Finland or Sweden or Ukraine uh, in NATO is not going to be uh, on the table and it's not going to help us to resolve this this conflict. So I, I think we benefit militarily from being um, uh, rigorous about the defensive nature of NATO. Um, is it is it? Is the, is the argument about NATO being a threat to Russia, how much is rhetorical fodder or how much is actually deeply felt by, by Putin and the Russians? Yeah, I never quite know how much they believe their own propaganda. And to a certain point they do and they are paranoid. And this government has become more and more syllabiki oriented. That that word means uh, military brass right? or, or mm. uh, literally sealess force. So force users are Siloviki. So Putin has more and more reverted over the course of a couple of election cycles to his, let's say, normative instincts, what he grew up with, what he grew up around. He has become more and more reliant on conservative types with a more paranoid military streak in their worldview. So he has... Uh, progressively given more and more space ideologically and within the cabinet and within his personal advisors to people who think like that. Mm. So, you know, it's hard to say, you know, what kind of information he gets and what kind of advice he gets, but it is obvious if you look at the long term frame of the kind of people who are in his cabinet and his personal uh, advisory circle that there are more and more ex-spooks or more and more mm. former military guys who see the world through a, a kind of military kill or be killed uh, frame or lens. Mm. That's not good. On the other hand, I, I never believed that NATO was any kind of threat to Russia. I mean, the best argument that could be made against it, you know, it's only 7% of Russian land that has NATO borders around it. Mm. These arguments that Russia is surrounded by NATO bases are always to be quite farcical, especially when you know NATO disarmed essentially after the end of the Cold War. I mean, they used to have like 110 battalions or 120 battalions ready to go to fight uh, a tank war in the middle of Germany against the Soviet Union. They have nowhere near even 10, 15 percent of the capacity that they had 30 years ago. But it seems to me that the best argument that can be made for them is that, you know, Russians' population centers are next to the European border and not so far from from NATO bases. Of course, it's all nonsense because it's, uh, you know, there's no military capacity in Poland or Estonia to invade the neighboring Russian military districts, which have like 140,000 troops in them. And they're entirely there as tripwires to, to get uh, public buy-in from those countries once their troops are killed in order to get the full-on military to, to come into Poland and Germany and fight mm-hmm. Russian troops there. I mean, nuclear, nuclear missiles and the fact that we all have nuclear missiles makes those arguments moot. The, mm-hmm. uh, the, the capacity to invade Russia from Estonia or Poland to say again is extraordinarily limited, right? So I, I never believe these arguments. I, I've always thought them to be specious and self-serving. Hmm. Um, I, I want to read an extract from 
Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Rebuild in Russia, which he published in 1991 as the USSR was collapsing. And while Solzhenitsyn welcomed the separation with uh, the majority of former socialist republics, um, the half-Russian, half-Ukrainian intellectual added that, and I quote, all the talk of a separate Ukraine people existing since something like the ninth century and possessing its own non-Russian language is a recently invented falsehood. We all sprang from precious Kiev, from which the Russian land took its beginning. And it's quite interesting because last summer, Putin released a long-form essay um, with very similar rhetoric about how the inhabitants of both countries are brothers and how the fight is a fratricide. Um, Michael, I'm going to ask you this as a professor of history. Is this narrative <laughs> grounded in history? I find it sort of impossible to, uh, to value, evaluate in yes or no terms. I mean, obviously, there are lots of interconnections, uh, you know, that speak to imperial connections, uh, language, religion, folkways, cuisine, uh, culture, and you have the simple fact, which is meaningful for Ukraine and for Russia, that lots of people uh, are intermarried. You mentioned Solzhenitsyn, but you could go through the, the leadership of the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. Brezhnev and Khrushchev, Gorbachev, and others who had sort of intermingled Ukrainian-Russian uh, families. So, you know, if you wish to find connections, I don't think it's it's difficult. Those are rooted in, uh, in real history. But obviously, both Solzhenitsyn and Putin give very tendentious interpretations of those uh, connections that, as Vladislav would know better than I, are highly disputed uh, among many in Ukraine. And, and, you know, sort of numerically, more Ukrainians have disputed those connections after 2014 uh, than, uh, than before. I mean, you could sort of ask about the question of the United States and Great Britain. Is the United States a child of Great Britain? Huh. Is Great Britain the mother? I mean, there have been Americans who have seen it that way, but uh, there are many who would, uh, you know, sort of object uh, to that reading, I think the key question for Putin uh, is what work does this do for Putin? These kinds of of, of articles and these kinds of uh, these kinds of arguments. Obviously, it doesn't convince people in Ukraine. Uh, it's not just the uh, the British Defense Minister who thinks that this is nonsense. I think most people in the West sort of reject this uh, this reading of things. It just seems like uh, a kind of neo colonial uh, arrogance on the Russian part. But I think. It probably does speak to something close to a consensus view uh, in uh, in Russia itself. Although many Russians who would say that you know Ukrainians are our brothers or sort of our close neighbors would also acknowledge that uh, Ukraine deserves to have its political uh, independence, and so that you know maybe wouldn't play into the kind of Putinist uh, narrative. But it's one of the ways in which he shores up his uh, his foreign policy and this sense in Russia of Eastern Ukraine in particular, sort of vestigially. Russian or sort of authentically Russian, inevitably Russian in Crimea that worked perfectly for Putin in terms of domestic Russian politics. And I think for much of Eastern Ukraine, uh, that is kind of workable. So it's not the historical truth that should matter. It's sort of where this might help Putin to justify his foreign policy in the event uh, of a wider war. And it's clearly a kind of cultural political factor. It, Vlad, does it shape the psyche in, in Russia and in Ukraine, this kind of uh, historical narrative of uh, Ord Rus and Kiev and the rest of that? Look, Solzhenitsyn is a fairly ordinary representative of that particular kind of conservative Russian chauvinist worldview. 
there's nothing new about that kind of worldview. He was a greater Russian patriot, imperialist, chauvinist, whatever. Uh, lots of people like Putin think the same. Probably, I don't know, I'm not a sociologist, maybe 60 to 70% of Russians think that way, certainly a majority. Certainly, the Russian opposition does not ever bother talking about Crimea because it polls at like 82% or 84% mm. that the, the Russian population wanted that. Now, does 82% of a Russian population want a full-on scale war? If you really are brotherly people, why are you killing hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of your, of your brothers? I mean, it didn't save anyone in Yugoslavia from not killing each other, but they were all intermarried also, right? Uh, brotherly people get into fratricidal killing all the time in Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. You know, again, didn't help the anybody. The Bible starts with the Bible and ends yeah. of you know, ends <laughs> of our brothers and sisters. Um, yeah, it, it, this is this is a narrative that has lost its purchase on the majority of the Ukrainian population. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is certainly a divorce taking place between uh, Russia and Ukraine. It is probably not something that is reversible unless you actually occupy the country in which case you're going to have partisan warfare it's not going to work either but mm. you know I, i've written a lot about this this is in my book this is what odessa from odessa with love is about it is about the birth of a new ukrainian political culture often russian speaking where the chains and the links and the markets importantly that have linked russia and ukraine for let's say 30 years as as independent states are being dissolved broken and dismantled so from from social media where you can no longer really be on on social media in russia and ukraine to trains and planes not flying and riding in between uh, russia and ukraine to film distribution and music distribution and book publishing Ukraine is setting up its own independent economic, political, social, cultural sphere. Mm -hmm. That is an irreversible process. And for Ukraine, time is their friend. For Ukraine, every day that the country exists, it becomes stronger. It deals with its internal issues. It deals with corruption little by little, though it's a decades-long process. Uh, What Ukrainians need is time. As long as they have time, as long as things don't change, Russia's losing. And Putin sees this and he's becoming frustrated. That's why he's pushing now. For, for Russia, a normal situation in Ukraine, as normal as it can be in the middle of a long-term occupation and uh, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder and all this uh, metaphor- metaphorically and, and really just spread out through the population, that, that is for him a losing proposition. Every day that the state exists, it is strengthening. And every day that Russia is not able to resolve the situation politically or militarily, the further Ukraine gets out of their grasp. And Putin sees this very well. It makes me think of uh, what uh, Milan Kundera wrote about the, uh, uh, the West, the kidnapped West, I think, yeah. where he makes a distinction between great nations and, and small nations in Small nations, such as Ukraine, for example, kind of solely focused on, on survival and are grateful they are that they exist. Whereas great nations like Russia, France, or, or the UK, um, in their national anthems, for example, will talk about glory, greatness, um, values. Where small countries like small nations like Poland or Ukraine 
in their anthems will say, thank God, we're still surviving, still alive. So I thought it was an interesting distinction here. Um, I, I want to go back to, um, you talked about the, the political class in Russia being pretty united on this issue. However, it's not clear the case, it's also the case in Ukraine. Um, you recently wrote an article in Foreign Policy on this issue, Vlad, uh, but essentially, if I get it right, um, the former president and oligarch um, Poroshenko has just returned to Kiev to face, to face treason charges. Um, can you walk us through those charges? Are they based in some kind of reality or are they exaggerated and kind of more generally, how does this political infighting um, weaken Ukraine in this ongoing political tension with Russia? Yeah, that, that's a really bad situation. And it's really, uh, uh, as diplomats would say, the timing is unhelpful, right? <laughs> Uh, so, you know, not to not to get into the bloody details, but basically President Poroshenko had greenlit at a certain point, allegedly trade with Russian backed separatist proxies for coal in the midst of a situation where there was not enough coal. I wrote, an, uh, like you said, a foreign policy piece about it. Do look it up. Uh, there's a lot of details on that. It's uh, a specious case. He may have allegedly done other things that you could put him in jail for, allegedly, uh, if, if any lawyers are listening to this. This is not the thing that if I was going after him, this is not the case that I would be using because the Ukrainian government never bothered to cut off uh, trade with Russia anyway. The, you know, Naftogaz collects uh, transition fees for U Russian gas and all this uh, and, and oil and all and there's still business between Russia and Ukraine. And no one says that Russian and Ukrainian citizens can't do business together. This is completely specious. You could put anyone in jail for anything, even though, you know, it's a political decision for him to have, uh, you know, said no to particular coal shipments from South Africa, which was political, a political decision. It was a really cold winter, 2014-15. There was a war on... Um, it was a small shipment, uh, I think it's $54 million, what they're talking about. He wasn't personally getting rich off of this. This is a government tender for, uh, you know, heating contract. Mm. And, I mean, it wasn't like they were buying it directly from the Russian army. They were, they were buying it, I think, pr through proxies, through uh, the U Ukrainian uh, separatists. It was a, an attempt to link him to Medvedchuk. So it's a, transparently a political thing. It was probably put into operation long ago, as in like three months ago, they made this decision and they wanted to clear the, the, the second round field for the upcoming 2024 presidential elections. They were looking to, uh, you know, they were looking at the polls. They're very poll oriented. And the polling shows that uh, President uh, Poroshenko, former President Poroshenko, is doing better and better. Uh, mm -hmm. as time as time passes and uh, this president who does come out of television is really <laughs> ratings oriented and they wanted to clear the field before 2024 in this year before 23 long way away and a couple of months ago this decision was probably made and it's it probably has something to do with television because uh, there are four or five tv verticals and that's how you get elected in ukraine as in lots of other places, as we know. Huh. And huh. Uh, you get rid of Medvedchuk and his television stations, and then you get who's a Russian proxy. You know, it's understandable to get rid of him. You know, you, they could have done it less le more legalistically and less using um, 
emergency counterterrorism powers. Then you start going after other opponents like uh, President uh, Poroshenko, and uh, you are no longer reliant on Akhmetov's TV stations or or, or Pinchuk's. I mean, Pinchuk's TV stations are friendly, and it's really the Kolomoisky TV stations that are really back on track once you're going after Kolomoisky's number one enemy, who's Poroshenko. So it doesn't look great in the middle of this situation, to say the least. Um, Michael, there's another political leadership that has been pretty divided about all of this. It's been the European political leadership, which seems um, struggling to create a coherent message. Um, I, I want to point out one thing, which is Putin has insisted on um, scrapping the Normandy format, which was a, a format with France, Germany, uh, Russia and the US, because Russia just wants to meet one on one with the US uh, a la Cold War, if you want. Um, it kind of feels like the EU does not really know what it wants to do um, in, the, in the, the EU's institution, but also the, the member states not quite sure what they're supposed to do. They feel like spectators. Um, is this crisis making things very obvious that the EU remains a vegetarian in a world of carnivores, uh, as the saying goes? Well, as the author of a book titled The Abandonment of the West, let me start, yeah. despite the gloom of the title on optimistic note and mention all the things that are going right uh, on the Western side uh, and that don't always get as much attention as, as they deserve. It's implicit to what Vladislav was saying a moment ago, uh, and it's also a theme of his book, uh, that the West, uh, Europe and the United States, has real magnetic power mm -hmm. uh, in Ukraine. It has a power of attraction that Russia doesn't have. Mm -hmm. And however many tanks Putin musters and however much air power he uses, he can't really change that dynamic. And that's very substantial. And, uh, you know, if Ukraine has time on its side, I think the West does as well on this level in terms of its, uh, in terms of its attractiveness. So there's a kind of, uh, you know, sort of long-term uh, built-in advantage or plus that the West has that's, that's, uh, uh, that's worth noting. I think also... Uh, if you look at the diplomacy of the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, on the economic front, uh, uh, it's fairly unified. Uh, and I think the message has been sent, to my mind, effectively, that if Putin makes a big military move, there will be massive huh. uh, economic repercussions for Russia uh, via sanctions. Um, you know, you could also say that there's some movement sort of on the military front with Britain, Canada, uh, the United States, the Baltic Republics, and others sort of upping their arms uh, shipments uh, to Ukraine, which is perhaps a symbolic act at the moment, but uh, does uh, send uh, a kind of a message. So, you know, uh, it's not all um, fissures, cracks, problems, uh, and tensions. There's a fairly unified uh, front. Uh, you could just recall that in 2014, it took Europe six months to put sanctions into mm. effect. And, they, and without MH17, the shootdown of that airplane, Europe might not have sanctioned Russia for uh, the annexation of Crimea and invasion of the Donbass. So here we're getting a different sort of preemptive message. Uh, and that's helpful for Western policy. But clearly, if you kind of you know <laughs> look to the other side of the ledger, I mean, Germany is hedging its bets. Mm. Uh, it's using very, very careful language about Nord Stream 2. Uh, and about sanctions. Uh, it obviously does not want to get involved in any way militarily. That's continuity from the Merkel to the Scholz governments, but um, uh, is sort of a bit of a problem for the West. And of course, France yesterday floated this idea of a kind of alternative structure uh, that Europe would build up 
uh, with Russia, uh, and then sort of once they did it, they would consult with NATO, if that's a correct reading of what Macron was uh-huh. uh, was saying, which is uh, you know for Western unity a very very unhelpful uh, very unhelpful uh, turn of events. I think to take a step back, the problem with Europe is not at all that it's irrelevant. It's relevant economically. It has an important relationship to Ukraine. You know, trade agreement that that sort of sparked. Uh, the crisis in 2013 with Yanukovych, that agreement was eventually signed and sort of solidified between Ukraine uh, and Europe. But this is what I would say critically, not just of the present moment, but of the last six, seven years, Europe has been very lazy about Ukraine. It felt no sense of urgency to use the Normandy format to try to resolve the situation. It didn't have the urgency to sort of increase its leverage through economic or military means in the last six, seven years. And so it sort of wasted this time. And now Russia, in a very dramatic way, is upping the ante uh, and it's clear that Europe doesn't really know what uh, what to do. So it's like the check has come due for six, seven years of, you know, sort of not half-baked, but sort of half-pursued uh, policies. Right. And it's as if the moment of truth has has arrived right. and it's, it's, it's not easy. Uh-huh. Um, we are reaching the end of our um, conversation here. I just want to kind of test you a little bit on, on trying to, predict for the next few weeks how do you see this um issue developing in the next few weeks if you had to if you had to bet on it if you had to kind of imagine a possible landing ground what would it look like Vlad? i'm going to be pessimistic i think the biden administration is going to fold i just think they're going to fold so that you know i would if i had to put money out of my pocket and put it on the table and i love gambling <laughs> i i love gambling um I'm. Uh, I would gamble that they would uh, that they're that they're going to fold and that they're going to squeak through. I just you know after Afghanistan and uh, Nord Stream two and then and then doubling down on Nord Stream two and and not fighting back against uh, you know the the complete lack of um, uh, interest in, in the Germans uh, to to say you know we look we have to make sacrifices. I just, I just don't see anything. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm beyond uh, angry at this administration. Uh, let me be emotional. I, I don't, I don't like their foreign policy. I don't intend to vote for uh, uh, President Biden in 2024. Uh, uh, I don't intend to vote for uh, Vice President Harris. I'm just, uh, or anyone who serves in this administration. It's not to say that I'm going to vote for Republican, but whatever. I, I think they'll fold. I do also think that the Russians will do something like blow up uh, a missile base or, uh, hmm. you know, turn off the electricity grid or, you know, I don't know. Okay. Michael, what are, what, are you, you going to take him up on his bets? <laughs> uh, kind of. Uh, I don't think the Biden administration is going to fold. I think if they would have that as an instinct, they would have done it already. And instead, they've sort of gone... Uh, in the opposite direction, have yielded to none of the Russian uh, demands, have sort of, uh, you know, marshaled transatlantic support for Ukraine, such as it is. And I would agree with Vladislav that it could be much uh, greater, but it's sort of consistent with the kind of commitment that was made to Ukraine in 2014. Sort of no real military role uh, for the West, economic role, uh, sanctions and such, but uh, Ukraine is sort of occupies this ambiguous place. Uh, in uh, in Western strategy, and that covers the last three presidential administrations in the U.S. and spans a lot of different European uh, European governments. So I think that you know 
what you're going to see from the West is what you've seen in the last couple of weeks. Uh, there'll be a willingness to sort of listen uh, to the Russians and to meet here and there, but the sort of West has answered already. Uh, uh, and I think for that reason, uh, it's going to be very hard for Putin to back down. Uh, I can't imagine. Putin has consciously put himself in a situation where he can't really yeah. back down without some incredible self-generated humiliation. Yeah. Uh, so he's got to do something. something. Like, uh, like Hernan and... Cortes, who sank his ships while landing in Mexico. There's no going back. Precisely, yeah. That's, that's, that's the only explanation for this kind of maximalist uh, diplomacy. If it was about reducing military exercises in the Black Sea or sort of moving Western missiles 100 kilometers back, Putin could get that with much less uh, effort. So I think he's after something much uh, larger here. Mm-hmm. But let me just add as a sort of concluding note... Um, and, you know, to sort of reverse the terms in terms of optimism and pessimism, I think that a Russian invasion of Ukraine could be the end of Putinism. There's so many ways in which it could fail and go wrong uh, for Russia. And I think it's very possible that Putin in the situation uh, is overconfident uh, and over-reliant, as the U.S. was perhaps on the eve of the Iraq war, sort of over-reliant on military force uh, as a lever. So it's not that I would wish this invasion upon anybody. I hope to God that it doesn't happen. Uh, but uh, there are lots of ways in which it could be Putin's uh, undoing. So huh. that's, you know, the sort of, <laughs> that's the, the last comment that I would make in terms of what I think is going to happen, that there will be a military move, uh, but I think by no means is it guaranteed to, to succeed for Putin huh. uh, and could become a huge Vietnam, Afghanistan type situation. Uh, albatross around his neck. Huh. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Michael, for this um, great concluding thoughts here. Um, thankful both of you for this great oversight, overview of the situation. Uh, we talked about history, we talked about Solzhenitsyn, um, we talked about all those fascinating things. There was a bit of a um, uh, spy scale moment where I asked you what does Putin want, what does he really, really want? Um, so that was an interesting moment as well. And uh, I also want to make sure that in the, in the month's time, uh, whoever loses the, the bet, uh, PayPal the other one, um, $10, because I think we've got a, a proper bet here. Anyways, Deal. Thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks a lot, Vlad, and thanks a lot for coming back on the show. And to all our listeners, I tell you, I'll see you next week. And Jorge will be back, don't worry. See you next week. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Francois. Great. So Vlad Davidson and Michael Kimmich are both out. What did you think about this episode on Ukraine, uh, Francois? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot going on. First of all, I thought it was very interesting that our, um, essentially our correspondent in Ukraine Vladislav Davidson was telling us he, he's in the desert right now, or he might have just left. But people on the ground didn't really change their lives around this. Um, I also saw this very funny post on, on Facebook by a group of expats in Kiev Facebook group where people were saying, uh, I know the Russians might invade, but do you think the nightclubs will still be open in Kiev? Um, so I think that's kind of a mindset right now, which is, Ukraine has been under pressure from Russia since uh, 2014. With the annexation of Crimea, with the little green men in the Donbass, with a uh, you know, civil war, kind of trench warfare, frozen trench warfare, which gets hot sometimes in the east of Ukraine. So they've been living with this for a very long time. Um, the question is now, why did Putin escalate? There's different reasons. Um, there was an interesting debate, I think, between Michael and, and Vlad on what extent did the current administration in the United States in the White House play a role in the decision-making of Vladimir Putin. Michael said this Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with Joe Biden. This is uh, Putin being opportunistic because there's structural shifts going on. He was going to do it no matter what. Whereas um, Vlad was quite um, 
quite angry at the current administration for being too soft on Ukraine and, and, and on Russia, sorry, and not giving enough um, support. Um, it's not clear, but as, as Vlad said, Putin is like a pope or even more than a pope because he has outlasted three different popes. Um, um, oh, sorry, he outlasted, this is his third pope. He outlasted two popes. He has this kind of institutional memory, which you know presidents do not have. So, you know, a US president has a timeline of two years because that's when the midterms happen. Uh, maybe four years mm. if you're being generous. Putin doesn't have, he has elections, he still has to win them, um, but he's not constrained by that kind of process as much. So he can, he, he can play the long game. And the lessons he is drawing from this crisis will inform the next crisis and where he acts. Um, so it's not, it's not easy at all. And um, I, I'm, I'm still somewhat, I know the French is quite skeptical of uh, some of the uh, um, uh, worries that the Americans have about a possible invasion. I think the French tend to be a bit more skeptical about this. Um, but it's not impossible. I mean, um, and, and, and if it is a bluff, well, if you want your bluff to be as efficient as possible, you need to make sure it is as believable as possible. And therefore, you know, making sure everybody thinks war is a distinct possibility. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think, look, this is um, this is almost, um, I, I don't want to belabor this point. We've, we've, you know, talked about this issue endlessly on this podcast. But if, yep. if one thing, uh, if one thing should come out of this crisis, it's, you know, if, if this crisis um, um, serves to, to highlight something, it's it's the absolute necessity of, of a greater uh, uh, European uh, ability to defend the continent on its eastern flank, right? I mean, um, and I think this this points to Germany's role, particularly where uh, Germany has been the uh, the country that is most uh, staunchly opposed. You know, the the effort to build. Uh, to, to get to get European countries up to meet their their two uh, percent of GDP NATO mm-hmm. commitment, um, so I think um, look whether or not wh- whatever happens in the, the Russian Ukrainian border, whether or not there's a partial or a complete invasion, um, I mean this is this is uh, this is um, it, it shouldn't take an invasion is what I mean. It shouldn't take an invasion for Germany to react and to. Um, and to uh, fulfill its commitment uh, to spend two percent of GDP on its on its defense, and it shouldn't take an invasion uh, for European countries to realize that you know the age of American patronage is long over, and the American public, because this is not even just a matter of the American government, Republican mm-hmm. or, or Democrat, this is a matter of the, the American public opinion. Um, you know, the American people are graduating away from this kind of like. 1990s mentality of liberal imperialism where, you know, American defense is, is uh, projected out uh, towards, um, you know, the, the, the Europe and that, you know, America shoulders the, the defense burden for, for the European continent. The American people are no longer going to be voting for presidents that behave, that, that um, act according to that, um, to that playbook. So I think okay. Europeans need to, need to wake up and they need to react and there, there needs to be greater European responsibility for our defense. But I think, okay, a lot of countries will actually um, conclude very differently from you, which is we need America to be closer to us and they will see any kind of attempts for a greater European autonomy as uh, uh, an aggression against the United States, which will only risk re- creating that, uh, increasing that rift 
with with Washington. Uh, I'm not sure that's the right analysis, but I think it's a, a lot of countries, especially countries like Poland. It's not just Germany. You no, know, Poland does not want anything like that because it has considered its European defense is not whatever France or whatever strategic autonomy um, we we end up with. Um, mm. Their European defense is called NATO. It's called America. Um, and so I, I do not think it's going to move the needle that much. It might a little bit. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we can rail against the Germans all we want. It's not just, for, it's not only the Germans, it's also the Poles. It's also kind of central and Eastern Europe, because these are countries which have a, a distinct experience of being invaded. Um, and, you know, uh, France has not a lot in its history to protect Poland throughout centuries. But in 1939, uh, the French did nothing while the Germans and the Russians carved up um, carved up Poland and then Poland stayed under Russian occupation Soviet occupation for, for decades so I think it's it's, it's a trauma we can't uh, we can rail about but it's something we need to, to understand in our calculations and um, I really recommend our listeners go give a read to a kidnap West kidnap West by Milan Kundera where he writes something which is really thoughtful especially for us coming from you know france germany the uk the united states uh, you know countries which are focused on you know uh, global influence on values and all these different things um milan kundera makes a distinction between small nation and great nations he said that you know great nations like france germany england the united states these are countries which know they will be around for, for, for decades or maybe even centuries and they act accordingly. They talk about glory, values, the rest of it. But for many countries, especially in Eastern and Central Europe, they did not have that luxury. Their focus was squarely on survival. And actually, if you listen to a Polish anthem, um, I forget the exact lyric, but essentially they say, thank God we're still alive, essentially. Um, it's a huge distinction. When you're thinking about survival, you have a very different policy than when you're a great nation and talking about glory and values and all the rest of it. Um, so this was our first episode of 2022 for our brand new season. And we want to take a little bit of time with you to walk us through some of the goals we have for the semester. As some of you know, we've opened our Patreon accounts um, last year, in November last year. And we first wanted to thank all our amazing patrons who have been supporting us. David, Isabel, Raphael, Martina, Nicola, Axel, Carol, Henry, etc., etc. Thank you so much for your support. We are reaching a point where we're going to consider it having some paid tiers, which means we'll give special content to our patrons. Um, uh, special Q&A sessions. We want to make sure our patrons, for example, will know ahead of time who will be inviting. They can send us some recommendations of guests. They can send us some recommendations of questions and so on and so on. We want to create a real relationship with our patrons because we have great ambitions for this semester, Jorge. We, just, we are creating a legal structure right now um, so we can do some great and grander things. We can do some partnerships. We can um, do some more complicated um, uh, events and stuff. So this obviously is going to mean some, you know, some we're going to need some financial support to pay for the equipment, to pay for the digital equipment we have, and so on and so on. So if you're if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, if you if you end up being here most weeks, well maybe that means uh, you you like the show, and if you want to share the love, you can do very simple things like supporting us on Patreon uh, for the price of a sandwich, you know, for five five euros a month. 
that will be tremendously useful for all the projects we have. You can also support us through our Apple, pod Apple podcast page. You can write a review there. You can publish a rating. These really help for the SEO, the search engine optimization, which makes our podcast more recommended to you on your, on your various platforms. It's easiest, easier to find us online, et cetera, et cetera. So that really helps. Um, something else which we have for you, we created a uncommon decency website. Um, so as some of you know, we've been, we've been publishing those, those episodes, those podcasts, but we've also been writing a lot of articles over the past few weeks past few months, Jorge and myself. Um, so if you want to both look at, back at all the episodes we publish, but also take a read at the many articles we publish, essentially on those same themes, on the French election, on strategic autonomy, on you know the energy market, we wrote a lot of interesting articles, I think, um, which you might want to, to explore. So if you want to support us on Patreon, there's a link down below. And if you want to check the website, there is also a link down below. It's very straightforward. Just go in the description of the episode and there should be a link for all of this. So again, plenty of great ambitions, great hopes. We are um, trying to aim very high for our guests this semester. So Absolutely. we can really use all the support we can get. Absolutely. So Jorge, um, on to a new year, on to many new hopes and new ambitions. And to all of you, I say, see you next week. See you next week.